Well, good morning. Uh, we want to welcome you to Genesis Church. Uh, my name is Paul Mumon. I'm the lead pastor for Genesis. And uh, if you're new with us, uh, you need to know I, I preach most Sundays over at our Noblesville location. We're one church with uh, two locations. Steve Wallen is our Carmel campus pastor, and he typically preaches here most Sundays, but he's preaching over in Noblesville today. And so uh, I hope you know I always look forward to this time. And I just I love what God is doing in your lives and through our Carmel campus here. And so uh, thanks for being a part of of it. And if you're new today, boy, we'd love the chance to get to know you too. And so uh, don't sneak out of here without uh, introducing yourself to someone today. We'll be up front afterwards. We always have people back at our info hub in the lobby after the service. Uh, stop by and learn a little bit more about our church. We'd love to tell you about some of the great things that are happening at Genesis. And uh, if you've got a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to take it and turn to Acts chapter 17. Uh, if you want to use one of the Bibles around the room on the floor, it's page 772 or uh, maybe you use something like the YouVersion app on your phone. Feel free to go there with us to uh, Acts chapter 17. As you're turning there, have you ever experienced something uh, firsthand, uh, something so awesome, all right, only to be frustrated in trying to describe it to someone else? Like, you know, you, you see it firsthand, you experience it firsthand, they didn't see it, and so you try to describe it, and you just know that it doesn't matter what words you choose. I mean, there's just going to be some level of frustration uh, in trying to describe that awesome experience of someone else. Like maybe it was after a movie, a great movie, and uh, you saw a movie, and so you're back together with your family or friends, and you're trying to describe it, but since they haven't seen it, they don't really want you giving it away, and so you just get to that point where you're like, okay, you just got to see it, all right, so that we can talk about it together. Uh, I uh, had that experience with my, with my boys. I've got two boys, Luke's in fourth grade, Joel in sixth. They played on the same baseball team this summer, uh, a real thrill for our family. We had a, a big game. We were playing the first place team. Uh, we went into the uh, top of the sixth inning. We were down seven to two and our team put up a nine spot in the, uh, in the top of the six. We took the lead, ended up winning the game. My wife wasn't able to attend the game. It was a late game. She was at home with our daughter. And so my boys and I, we rushed home. All right. Just like three little kids rushed home, rushed in the front door to tell mom all about it. And this happened and this happened. And well, she tried to get her mind around it and she was excited, but she wasn't there. All right. She didn't, she didn't experience it firsthand. And so there was just a bit of a letdown in trying to, to describe those moments to her. Maybe, maybe you've had an experience like this after taking a great trip or a family vacation. Like our family, we went to a Yosemite last spring and uh, we had the opportunity to see the sequoia trees. Have you ever seen a sequoia tree before? And uh, not only did we see a sequoia, but we, we saw a tree hugger while we were there. And uh, they're uncommon in Indiana, but you see them quite regularly in California. And uh, that's my son, Joel. But uh, anyways, we saw the sequoias. If you've seen the sequoias before, like, you know, the challenge in trying to describe something like the sequoias uh, to someone that's never seen them before. How about this? Uh, maybe like on a mission trip. How, how many of you here, anybody here been to Haiti with, with one of our teams? All right. Some of you around the room, maybe you've been on a, another mission trip, something similar. You come back from a trip like that. And you try and describe the experience of someone else, but if you've not been there before, you know, you just really can't get it. You know, you can't see it. You can't get your heart around it. And so there's, there's always that little bit of letdown. You just get to the point. It's like, okay, you just have to go so that we can share this experience 
together. Well, we're in the uh, second week of a series uh, that we're calling The Father Is, and uh, here's what we're up to. Over these next couple of months this summer, we're looking at eight of many uh, different attributes of God. Now, uh, an attribute of God is just simply this. It's something that's true of God, all right? An attribute is something that is true about God, and our hope is that through this series and through this study together that we're going to gain a better understanding of Him and uh, by looking at these attributes together and that what they'll do is it'll translate into growth for us. It'll translate into a deepening of our relationship uh, with the Father. Now, I got to tell you right up front that any study of God is a pretty serious undertaking. Uh, I mean, how in the world do you begin to describe something so awesome or so great, someone like our God? Well, one thing that is important to note at the beginning of a series like this is that God himself is our only reliable source for such knowledge. Uh, we have to look to God and what he has revealed about himself for us and to us to better understand him. And we can only know that. We can only know what he's revealed to us by looking uh, to scripture. We must look to his word. And so with that in mind, there are at least two general conclusions that we can make about God from scripture. They're in your notes. I, I want to touch these right up front. The first thing is this, that God is incomprehensible. All right. When we think about a study of God and who he is and what he's like, the truth is, the fact is that he's incomprehensible. It's like trying to explain the, the universe to someone. It's like trying to explain eternity to someone else. I mean, how do you get your mind around something like that? I mean, who can comprehend it? And so the same is true with God. That no matter how smart we think we are, we will never fully or completely grasp who he is. It's impossible to know everything about God. David said it like this in Psalm 145, verse 3. He says, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise is his greatness no one can fathom. And then again in Psalm 139, verse 6, as David is commenting on the work of God uh, and how God creates people and individuals and babies and how he knits us together, David says, you know what, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And so we believe, we know that God is incomprehensible. We can't fully get our minds around who he is, but at the same time, number two there is while he is incomprehensible, we know that he is knowable. And that he has made himself known. And while we can't know everything about him, he wants to be known. And so he created us. He created you so that we could love him. He created us so that we could live for him and know him. He's, he's like this deep well where we'll never, never completely or fully reach the bottom of understanding who he is in this life. There is always something new uh, to learn and to discover about our Father in heaven. And Jesus is our greatest example for that. I mean, as we look to the life of Jesus, as we study Jesus, I mean, when it comes to knowing God... He's our best example. He, he was totally dependent on God. He modeled for us what it looks like to have an intimate relationship with our Father in heaven. Here's what Jesus said of that relationship in John chapter 17, verse 3. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you. Jesus was basically saying, hey, if you want to get to the heart of it, if you really want to understand the, the point of life, if you want to understand the, the purpose of life, Jesus says this. He says, hey, here's what eternal life is. Here's that purpose, that they know you that they would have a personal, intimate relationship with you. That's Jesus' desire for you and me, that we would have a personal, intimate relationship with God, the only true God. And he says, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, not only does Jesus provide for us an example for how to better know God, but he also made it possible. I mean, it's only because of Jesus that we can have a relationship with our Father in heaven. I mean, God sent Jesus to give his life 
so that we could know God, so that we could know the Father, and so that we could have this intimate relationship with him. And so we can't know. It's impossible to know everything about God the Father, but he can be known. He can be known. And why is this so important for us? Well, famous pastor and writer A.W. Tozer once said it like this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Try and get your mind around that for just a moment. What what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, that's a pretty bold claim, all right, to say something like that. I mean, why, why is the way we see God the most important thing about us? Well, think about it. You see, the way you see God is going to influence everything about your life. It's going to influence the the way you see the world. It's going to influence the way you see people. It's going to influence what you do with your time. It's going to influence what you do with your your resources and your possessions. I mean, the way you see God is going to affect your emotions. Uh, It's going to affect your faith in, in these frightening times that we're living in right now in this world. It's also going to impact the decisions you make. The way you see God is going to impact the direction you take with your life. It's going to affect and impact the way you view sin and the decisions and choices that you make. See, there are great advantages to knowing God for who he is. And as followers of Jesus, here's what we have. We know that there is hope and confidence in knowing God. That the more we get to know God, the greater security uh, we're going to attain in our life or understand in our life or we'll experience. It's It's going to increase our passion for him and for serving him and living for him and the desire to live for him. And above all else, I mean, the more we know God, the more contentment we're going to experience in our own life as we really understand, as we experience for ourselves that true contentment can only be found in a relationship with God and full and complete dependence on him. And so over these next seven weeks, we're going to look at these attributes, these different attributes of God together. Again, an attribute of God is just something that is true about God. And I want to say this too, that the goal isn't knowledge. Like the goal isn't knowledge for knowledge's sake, that we walk away and say, hey, I learned a little bit more. No, the, the goal, the heart of it all, the goal is that we will know him better. That the more you study him, the more that you understand who he is and what, you, what he's about. I mean, my hope, my prayer for all of us, for me, is that we will fall more deeply in love with our Father in heaven. Uh, it's like what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. It's really a prayer when you think about it. When Paul prays, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you what? So that you may know him better. See, that's my prayer for you and for me in this series is that we will know God better and that we will fall more deeply in love with him. We let, let's just stop and do that right now. Can we just pray for just a moment? Can I pray for you and pray for us and for our time together today? Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come into this place today. We are trusting you, Lord. We are fully and completely dependent on you. And it is our desire to pray that very same prayer that the apostle Paul prayed, that as we study you, Lord, as we look to your word, that we will know you better. And not just for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of the relationship that you've invited us into. And that we will be encouraged through it, that we will be inspired through it, that you will increase our faith because of it, Lord. And that we will live more fully and completely for you. Help us to know you better. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, if you missed last week, uh, Steve Wallen, our Carmel campus pastor, preached here uh, on the goodness of God. Today we want to take a look at an attribute of God that we're going to call the self-sufficiency of God. And uh, it's in your notes to say that God is sufficient or self-sufficient is to simply say this, that God is totally and absolutely complete within himself. All right? Uh, ever, ever meet someone like that? Ever meet someone that like has everything they could ever want or need? I think of my neighbor, uh, when I think of self-sufficiency, he's got every tool you could ever want to use. I, I love living next door to Jeff. I don't have to buy anything. All right. Cause he's got everything that you could need and he freely shares it as long as you bring it back and put it in the exact same place, uh, that you got it. Well, on a grander scale, God's self-sufficiency means that all that makes him who he is already resides within him, that he, his His self-sufficiency means that he needs nothing. Uh, His self-sufficiency means that he is dependent on nothing, that he is absolutely complete within himself. And I just want to share with you briefly just some verses that really speak to his self-sufficiency. Psalm 90, uh, chapter 90, verse 2. These are Moses' words. Moses said, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, all right? So before creation, this is prior to Genesis 1. He says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Uh, in Job 41, verse 11, it's God himself who says, you know, who, who has a claim against me that I must repay? He says, everything under heaven belongs to me. Or over in Psalm 50, uh, starting in verse 10. Again, these are the words of the Lord. He says, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. He says, I, I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine, even the mosquitoes. All right. Uh, uh, he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all that is in it. And then Jesus speaking of this self-sufficiency in John chapter 5, verse 26, he says, For as the Father has life in himself, all right, again, just pointing out that God is life, so therefore he is the creator of life. Uh, We have life because he's the giver of life. He says, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. These verses point to this truth that we have a very self-sufficient God, that he lacks nothing, that he craves nothing, that everything that there ever has been or that ever will be has been created by him. Again, our self-sufficient God needs nothing. And at the very same time, he created us. And he created you. And he created me. And why is that? I mean, why in the world does our self-sufficient God create someone like you and me? Well, we find it in various places in his word, like in John chapter 3, verse 16, where we read, for God so loved the world. Uh, Why did he create us? Because he loves us. Why did he send his son? Because he loves us, because he loves you. Uh, In Psalm 86, verse 15, we read the words, but you, you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. We're over in Zephaniah. That's fun to say. Zephaniah three seventeen. Uh, the Lord, your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. Can you imagine a father who takes great delight in you? That he created you, that he puts you together, that he loves you, that he created you. And in his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Imagine those words for yourself. This is the way that God thinks of you. First Peter chapter five, verse six, one more humble yourselves. Peter says, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, cast all of your anxiety on him. Why? Because the self-sufficient God, he loves you and he cares for you and he delights in you. This self-sufficient God of ours needs nothing, but in love, he created us and he cares for us. 
and he loves us. I want to spend a few more minutes with one other particular passage today uh, in Acts chapter 17. If you're already there, it's uh, in the middle of the New Testament. I want to look at one more example of the self-sufficiency of God here and how it comes up. Now, uh, if you're new to church or if you're new to the Bible, uh, the book of Acts is a history book. Uh, It describes the early days of the church following the resurrection of Jesus. And the apostle Paul is one of the main figures in the book of Acts. Uh, And if you don't know who Paul is or was, Paul was a church planter. You could say that he was a disciple maker. You could say that he was a a missionary. And so by the time we reach Acts chapter 17, he's out on what we sometimes refer to as his second missionary journey, a trip that has taken him to the Greek city of Athens. And so that's where I want to pick it up in Acts chapter 17, starting at at verse 16 there, I think page 772 uh, in the Bibles around the room, but uh, we'll have the words here for you on the screen as well. Why don't you just see uh, what's happening here? Here, a moment in history, and uh, Luke records it like this. He says, while Paul was waiting for them, and just so you know, he's waiting for Silas, he's waiting for Timothy to kind of catch up with them, and they're going to go out, they're going to continue this missionary work together. Uh, And so he's waiting for them in Athens. It says, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, I've never been to Athens before. Uh, Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've, uh, if you haven't been there, at least you've seen pictures. And uh, if you've been there, you know that the city is full of great art. Uh, The city is full of great architecture. At least that's what we call it today. All right, because 2,000 years ago, it wasn't just great architecture, but more importantly, it's what we would refer to as idolatry. All right, each of these places was to a different god or to a different uh, goddess. And so Athens was full of temples and shrines, again, dedicated to false gods and goddesses like the one the city is named for, Athens being this for the uh, goddess Athena. And, and so Paul's there, all right, he's there as a follower of Jesus Christ, and he's just overwhelmed. All right, by what he sees and what people are giving their lives to. Uh, Luke records that he's distressed by this. Now, I don't know if distressed describes how you feel about our world today, but at times it does for me. All right, as I think about how people are living today, as I think about the violence, as I think about all of the division, as I think about the the hate that exists uh, in our world and in our country, and at the very same too, all of the examples of the things that people give their lives to, uh, anything other than God. And if you think about it, the fact is that our country is really no different than this ancient city of Athens. I mean, right now we are surrounded. We are absolutely overwhelmed by idols. Now, what's an idol? Well, I just say this, that an idol is anything that's more important to you than God. Uh, An idol is anything that takes first place in your life or priority in your life, anything other than God. It's anything that catches your heart. It's anything that affects your emotions or influences your life. Anything more important to you than God. Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, an idol is anything so important to you that if you were to lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Now, we, we may point to, we might look in history and point to temples and shrines as examples of idolatry, you know, like here in ancient Athens. But the truth is that idols take all shapes and forms uh, today. I mean, you, if you think about it, you can make an idol of your family. Uh, you, you can make an idol of, your, of a relationship or a marriage. You can make an idol of your children. Uh, we make idols out of our children's sports today. We make idols out of career, money, or hobbies, vehicles. We, we, we make uh, an idol out of a, a social standing or, a, again, a romantic relationship. We make idols out of sexual identity. Uh, an idol is anything that we feel we must have. It's anything we feel like we deserve. It's anything that we allow to take the place of God as the most important thing in our lives. And so the Apostle Paul was just overwhelmed by this. 
He was distressed and he was concerned. And so verse 17 says, so he reasoned, he, he debated, all right? He's going to be really intentional in the conversations that he has with, with people as he, he walks about in place to place, like in the synagogue, it says, with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. He, he's also going to go and have these intentional conversations in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. Luke notes that a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers uh, while he was in the marketplace, began to debate with him. Now, he points two intentional groups. Epicureans believed the purpose of life was pleasure, uh, pleasure at all costs. All right, you, you know anybody like that today? You know, just anything and everything. It's pleasure at all costs. The Stoic, uh, a Stoic uh, is someone who believes that there, there is a greater purpose to live for, but really that we have the capacity in and of ourselves to kind of define or understand uh, that, 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 that purpose. We, that, it's, it's almost as if you're saying we're self-sufficient, on our own. And so he continues. Some of them ask, what's this babbler referring to Paul trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so I just want you to see here that Paul's not afraid to talk about his faith and what's most important to him. He's very intentional in this. I, I think we could say it's very natural for him. And it's natural because Paul believed that more than anything, that there is nothing There is nothing more important than the resurrected Christ. And so for him, his primary purpose and passion was to share his story and to share his faith in Jesus Christ with others. Man, don't we need that same urgency too? And you you and I, we need to have that same urgency. We need to live with that same intentionality. We need to have that same passion for sharing our story and for what Christ is doing in us really now more than ever. Now look at verse 19. It says, then they took him, they took Paul uh, and brought him into a meeting, to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now, uh, situated on a hill near the Acropolis, the Areopagus here, you can see a picture of it, probably overlooked the city. And uh, the Areopagus in this day was a meeting place for some of the most prominent thinkers and philosophers of the day. And so they'd, they'd come to this location to talk about all the latest and greatest. They, they talk about all the latest thoughts on, on spirituality, on religion, on things like education. And so Paul is being invited into this important place, into this distinguished meeting place, really, where the members are going to ask him this various questions. Let's pick it up again in verse 19. It says, uh, they asked him, may may we know, Paul, uh, what's this new teaching that you're presenting? All right. So this is foreign to them. All right. They haven't heard about this up to this point. They say, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. We get a footnote here that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived here spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to these latest ideas. Verse 22, look what Paul does. He says, then he stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Now, here's what I want you to see. I want you to notice first the respect that Paul extends to these men and maybe women. I mean, he's not trying to uh, insult them in any way, but rather he's trying to establish some common ground from which he can now speak into their lives, from which he can share. I think that's important for you and I to note, all right, in our relationships as we're being intentional with people, I think we need to remember that our arrogance, um, our disrespect for others, our sarcasm, our things like insensitive Facebook posts aren't going to win anybody to Christ. All right? 
It's not going to accomplish any good. And so I want you to notice Paul's respect for these men here. And and for Paul, he recognizes that they've got this altar. I don't know if you caught this or not, but while there are these altars set up, they've left one with just simply this inscription to an unknown God. Now, some historians, some theologians believe that it was almost their way of saying, okay, uh, here's the God we've overlooked. Here's, here's potentially the God we haven't yet heard from or come to know. And so they've left this place and Paul sees it. And for Paul, it's almost like that's perfect. Like this is my entry point. Here's my front door. And so Paul's going to use this. And I think that's an important note for us too. I think it's a reminder that as you're out cultivating relationships, uh, as you're having intentional conversations with people, uh, look for questions that come up. And look for topics that come up. Look for, for hurt and pain in people's lives and just see those as an opportunity to speak hope and speak encouragement. I mean, if you're praying about it, if you're praying about these conversations, God is going to open the door for you to provide some words of hope and wisdom and encouragement. And so it's like the, the apostle Peter says, he says, we need to always be ready to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so that's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's ready to share truth about our God and for the sake of our attribute today. I want you to look carefully and observe now in the Apostle Paul's words how he describes the self-sufficiency of God. Verse 24, look what he says to him. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Can you imagine these people looking out over this hill and seeing all of these temples? Paul says, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everyone else, everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Verse 28, he says, for it's in him that we live and move and have our being. The apostle Paul says this, who's this self-sufficient God of ours? We can know and understand that he is the creator. He's the God who made both heaven and earth. He's made everything that is in it today. This God of ours, he is the awesome God. You know, unlike these uh, gods of Athens, there is no building that contain him, as Paul points out. He he does not live in temples built by human hands. Who's the self-sufficient God of ours? He's the sovereign God. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. This God of ours, he's the giver of life. He, He gives life and breath to all things. From one man, he made everyone. And for each person that has ever been, he marked out our appointed times. God has marked out your appointed time in all of history. And what's he up to with all of this? Why has he created us? What's this mean for people like you and me, for our church here today? Well, I think we find that truth and hope in verse 27. It says he invites us to seek him and to reach out to him and find him so that we can know him. Can I just ask you today, do you know God? Do you have a a relationship with God? Do you have a, are you pursuing a relationship with our father in heaven? Paul points out in verse 28, because it's in him that we live and move and have our being. It's Paul's way of saying, you know, there, there is no greater purpose. Uh, there is no greater joy to be discovered. There is nothing as satisfying as knowing and as being in a relationship with our Father in heaven. And God, he invites us into that. 
and maybe inviting you into that today if, if you don't know him and know who he is. Um, I had an experience back a month or so ago. Uh, we, we finished up on a Sunday morning uh, over at our Noblesville campus and our, my family, we, we went out to lunch after church and uh, we were going to go to, we went to Qdoba. And so we walked into Qdoba and I tell you, the line was backed all the way to the door. And while we typically would have walked away, we had a coupon for free stuff. All right. And we just don't walk away from free stuff. All right. And so we endured the line, but here's what happened. When we walked in, I, I looked over over here and over there. And well, before I knew it, it's like, okay, I, I, I feel like I know everybody in here. And, you know, from, from baseball. And so there was one family and then some families from our kids' school and some people from the church. And so I'm just kind of working the restaurant, walking from table to table, saying hi. Jenny's just kind of saving our place in line. And so I did this for a few minutes and it was fun catching up with people. There were a bunch of people from Genesis there. And I finally came back over in line and stood next to my wife. And the guy in front of me turned to me. He had been witnessing all this. And he's like, what are you running for mayor or something? And uh, so I got a good laugh out of that and told him who I was and what I did for a living. And I, I just asked the question. I said, hey, do you go to a church here in Noblesville? And his response was just simply this. He says, no, I think it's a bunch of crap. And uh, I was like, wow, okay. So my follow-up was, are you going to get the fajita burrito or the tacos, you know? And uh, but, uh, you know, he, 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 well, he led with a bold line, but it honestly turned into a, a, a fairly pleasant conversation. And I said, well, let me ask you about that. And so we talked about that a little bit more. And in that time in line, he shared a little bit of his story. And, and I, you know, I asked him, I said, well, what, what about Jesus? Like, like, how do you reason Jesus? I mean, that we're, you know, he said, well, I, I think he was just kind of the David Blaine of the day, you know, that, that people were just drawn to him, you know, for his you know, maybe what appeared to be magic or something. And I said, yeah, but we're, we're still talking about him 2,000 years later. I don't think we're going to be talking about David Blaine in 20 years. Like, who, who has influence like that? And yeah, maybe so. And so we just kind of got into talking about, well, what do you live for then, you know? And so he kind of talked to me about some things that were important to him, things like uh, martial arts and, and his eating habits and such. And I kind of pointed out, well, you're wanting healthy eating habits, and we're standing in line in Qdoba. And, uh, and he says, well, I'm going to make a good choice in just a moment. I said, well, I'm getting ready to make a really bad choice uh, here at Qdoba with my nachos. But, uh, you know, we continued in this conversation. I said, well, you know, again, as we got back to purpose of life, you know, he's like, well, you know, I think everybody's got to live for something. I said, well, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, people live for money. People are living, you know, for a relationship. People, you know, others maybe are looking for, you know, satisfaction. God, where's all that come from, you know? And he said, well, you know, I think maybe we all have a soul. And so I kind of pushed back on that a little bit. I said, well, where's that come from? Is that just accident. And so it, it was an, I guess, somewhat of an encouraging, but yet very frustrating conversation at the same time. Cause I didn't, I didn't really have extended time with this man, but it was just a great reminder to me that, you know, we're, everyone is looking for meaning. Everyone is looking for purpose uh, in something. I shared Ecclesiastes 3.11 with him. It just says that the Lord, the, the God has placed eternity in the hearts of all people. He put that there that desire for more. I, I came across this article the other day. Rodney Stark in his book, The Triumph of Faith, uh, argues that our world today, whether we want to believe it or not, is very open to spirituality, including tra- traditional Christianity. Here's what he says. He says, uh, the world is more religious than
than it's ever been. Uh, he says, around the globe, four out of five uh, people claim to belong to an organized faith, and many of the rest say they attend worship services. Uh, in Latin America, Pentecostal Protestant churches have converted tens of millions, and Catholics are going to mass in unprecedented numbers. Uh, he writes, there are more church-going Christians in sub-Saharan Africa than anywhere else on earth today, and China may soon become home to the most Christians in the world. He says, meanwhile, although not growing as rapidly as Christianity, Islam enjoys fire, far higher levels of member commitment than it has for many centuries, and the same is true uh, for Hinduism. Uh, he goes on to say, furthermore, it, basically, in every nook and cranny left by organized faith, all manner of unconventional, unchurched supernaturalisms are booming. There are more occult healers uh, than medical doctors in Russia today. 38% of the French believe in astro astrology. 35% of the Swiss agree that some fortune tellers can really foresee the future, and nearly everyone in Japan is careful to have a, car, a new car blessed by a Shinto priest. The, the point is just basically this, that built in each of us is a desire for something greater, that there has to be an answer to all of this. And so there's this desire for meaning, there's this desire for purpose and for understanding. And for these Athenians at the Areopagus, Paul's answer to them was, hey, I see the same in you. The answer is God. It's the God of heaven. It's the unknown God that you have been searching for and looking for. And Paul says that it's in him that we live and move and have our being. And friends, the same is true for us today. That it's only in God that we live and move and have our being. And how do you reason something like that when it comes to a self-sufficient God? The self-sufficient God of ours that needs nothing. Which means he needs no support. It means that at the end of the day, he doesn't need our help. The fact of the matter is he doesn't need our nation. He doesn't need us to understand him. He has no obligation whatsoever to account for himself. This self-sufficient God of ours is more than capable of finding joy in himself. He, he, he is more than capable of being fulfilled in himself. He's completely satisfied in himself. He's not lonely. The bottom line of God is this, that he is completely sufficient in and of himself. He has everything that he needs. But at the very same time, the great mystery of God is this, that this God who doesn't need anything at all created you. And he knit you together in your mother's womb. And he's ordained every single day of your life. This God who doesn't need anything at all that created you. He created you so that you could bring him glory. Greater glory. He created us so that we could join him in this work of healing and restoration in this world. He created us so that we could love him and be loved by him at the very same time. He created us so that he could provide for us. This self-sufficient one, this father of ours is a provider. He's a giver and he loves to provide for his children. And this is the God that the Apostle Paul himself encountered. The God he speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. The self-sufficient father, he heard him say to Paul, Paul, my, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. See, the truth is this, that the self-sufficient one has everything that you and I need. It means that he is, he is more, which means that he is more than sufficient for you right now in your life. 
and in your greatest trouble and hardship. And for some of you, you just need to recognize today, I hope that you will hear and understand that he's what's missing from your life, that like the people at the Areopagus, maybe for some of you right now, you've been looking for meaning and hope in anything and everything but God, looking for God, something other than God to fill the void, looking to something other than God to, to answer the questions, looking to something other than God to meet the needs of despair in your life. The answer today, though, for you and me is right here in the words of the Apostle Paul. Again, we read them a moment ago that it's in God, it's in the Father that we live and move and have our being. See, our world is nothing without God. Our our country right now is nothing without God. You and I are nothing without him. He's what we need. He's what's missing from your life today. His gifts, his power, he is sufficient for us. And what he says to Paul, he says to you and me today, again, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, I've found myself kind of praying these words over and over again these past couple of weeks. And his grace is sufficient for me. And my fear, his grace is sufficient for me. And my anxiety, his grace is sufficient for me. And my worry and in all of my questions. And the same is true for you today. Again, no matter what you're going through right now, no matter what you're facing, his grace is sufficient for you. And so that means he is more than sufficient in your fear right now. He's more than sufficient in your worries, more than sufficient in your anxiety. He's more than sufficient in whatever it is that you're facing. And uh, the second part of that verse there, if we could pull that back up again, just 2 Corinthians 12, 9, is that his power is, is made perfect in our weakness. That, that somehow our weakness positions us in just the right place to be on the receiving end of the sufficiency of God. And so if you find yourself in a weak or troubling or crisis right now in your marriage, I want you to know today the hope that the Father is sufficient. If you're hurting, He is sufficient for you. If you're enduring or struggling pain, he is sufficient. If you're experiencing financial worries today, he is sufficient. If you're looking for purpose, the answer is in Jesus. If you're questioning your future, the Father is sufficient for you. And he loves us. And the greatest act of his love was the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. And that's that's how we're going to begin winding down our time together today uh, as we celebrate communion together uh, as a church family and just an opportunity to remember the gift of his son the greatest gift we've received is the gift of Jesus who is more than sufficient for us his life and his death and his resurrection sufficient for you. So in just a moment, I'm going to dismiss you from your seats. If you'd like to take communion with us today, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, we invite you to remember with us uh, what Jesus has done. We've got a couple of tables in the front and in the back, and in just a moment, I'll release you from your seats, and you can go to these tables and take a cup. Take both of them. You'll find that there are two cups actually tucked together, the juice in the top, the cracker in the bottom. You can take these back to your seat, and you take communion when you're ready. But I want you to remember his body, his body broken for you, his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins and the sufficiency that we have in the Father and the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And so you can go to these tables now. Again, you take communion when you're ready and then we'll close out worshiping and praying together.